Thank you for listening to this episode of Pit Stop, which means this episode is about Formula One specifically. If you enjoy this content and want more F1, let us know on Twitter or Instagram at lunchpailguys underscore and subscribe on your favorite podcast channel. And we are live with another episode of Pit Stop after the Miami Grand Prix. Um, I'm joined with Lucas this time, so you don't just have to listen to me, um, luckily. But with uh, let's start with our first segment. With Drive to Survive, obviously the popularity of Formula One has exploded in the U.S. And last weekend's Miami GP kind of served as a culmination of this popularity. It was a star-studded event on a new track. And it's the first of two Grand Prix in the U.S. this year. And next year, the number of Grand Prix in the U.S. will grow even more with the Las Vegas race, supplementary races in Austin and Miami. So, Lucas, what do you make of F1's growth in the U.S., especially especially when it seems like the expansions of races in the into the U.S. might come at the expense of more traditional tracks, with Spa and Spain possibly being two on the chopping block? So I'm of sort of two minds about this, I think. Like, I'm divided. Part of me really likes it, and part of me has my lingering fears about it, and I'll, I'll get to the fears later. But I'll start mm-hmm. with the why I think it's good. I, first off, I'm an American, and I would love to see <laughs> as many races near me as humanly possible, because I'd love to go to one one day. Mm-hmm. Sadly, they're all really far away from Philly right now, but sometime there'll be, like, a, a New York Grand Prix, or, like, a, <laughs> I don't know, a DC Grand Prix, and then it'll be close. Um so we'll get there one day. But furthermore, I think it's always also good for a sport when it grows and there are more people who become fans and the community around a sport grows. I think community is probably the best part of all sports. Um, the fact that like you can be tied to people all across the country and the world through like shared love and experience around a team or a sport. And if F1 grows and do, does that, and that means more fans in America, I think that's definitely a good thing. And so for those two reasons, growth of F1 in America, I think, is objectively good. On the other hand, I do fear like a little bit that this sport loses a little bit of its specialness um, when it has to sacrifice some of its historic tracks and other historic traditions uh, to grow, as it would lose a crucial part of its identity. And I think a really good comparison to like how this could go wrong is the European Super League soccer situation. Mm. Um, so for those of you who don't uh, know what the Super League is or don't remember, it was sort of a failed experiment last summer, which 12 of the biggest European soccer clubs decided to form their own breakaway league. Um, this plan cut against a lot of what soccer leagues globally um, sort of see as being special about themselves. Um, you know, the two foundational pieces of it are that you can only achieve success through playing well um, and having success on the field, meaning you can only make the Champions League, which is the premier competition, if you finish in the top four in your league every year. Um, if you don't do well, you drop down to lower leagues. With this, clubs will just buy essentially their place in this like super special league. And second, that clubs are tied to their communities and communities help make the decision. And this was done basically by owners um, without the uh, sort of input of the community. And while, you know, the European Super League was eventually shot down, I do think it represents some of the dangers of like how the Americanization of European sports could go wrong because the driving force behind a lot of the Super League was the American ownership of some of the big teams, mm. including Manchester United, uh, Arsenal, and Liverpool are all owned by Americans. Um, oh wow! And the, and this so, is yeah. I'm an I'm an ignorant soccer fan, European soccer fan. Well, any soccer, but yeah. <laughs> yeah so it seems like okay. they sort of took this American idea of sports and it was like you know you just have one league and everybody plays in it all the time and you can buy into it and transferred it and it didn't really translate. 
I think there's an issue that could happen with F1. So F1 was bought by Liberty Media Group in 2016, which is an organization owned by an American billionaire named John Malone. Since that time, F1's popularity has sort of skyrocketed in America, due in large part to Drive to Survive, which Jared alluded to in the intro. Um, and while there have been no dramatic steps that really undercut what the core of F1 is yet, I do fear that the growing popularity of the F1 in the U.S. will lead them to sort of pander to more U.S. audiences, and because um, so many of the fans are in the U.S. and they don't necessarily understand parts of the sport, that you will lose some of the tradition that goes along with it, especially with those historic tracks being cut away. And again, while this hasn't really happened yet, I do fear for it a little bit. So that's sort of the downside, I think, of all this, the Americanization of F1. Jared, what do you think? Yeah, I have a lot on this, so I'll try to break it up as best as possible, but yeah, at the end of the day, like F one has got an F one, and they only they only care about money. That the league mm-hmm. only cares about money. I'll say, and the spectacle, and which tra- race tracks are going to pay the most money for the race fees, and mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why Monaco was potentially looking like it might not be um, on the calendar anymore because they either don't pay a race hosting fee or just paid a very small amount compared to the other tracks. And the other thing too with like the Americanization is. Um, yes, I am happy that there's more races in America now, but among the team principals like Zach Brown, <laughs> like the American specifically seems to operate like more mostly like a pure businessman and mm-hmm. is like very public about wanting Monaco to step up to pay similar race fees fees to other venues. But I think yes, F1 is growing in the US, but the amount of popularity is still like really overstated, I think. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of like if you use like Twitter as a barometer for like how popular something is or like what everybody thinks when they only have like 229 million daily users compared to like Facebook, which has almost 3 billion. So it's not like, it's one of those things where it's not super reflective of like the entire collection. And I feel like of, of some of like a, a group's opinion. And I feel like that's kind of similar to like formula one. Like it was a record. You'll see all the headlines, all the news stories will say, record live f1 viewership which it was but it was 2.6 million viewers in a country of 330 million people you know what i mean it's and it was on abc it was on broadcast television Mm -hmm. so when you look at it that at that it's like okay it's not really that popular in the u.s and i saw that like more people in the netherlands watched watch races than in a country in like a country that's much smaller than the u.s than Mm -hmm. do here and like if you look at some other U.S. sports and how those compare, like Game Six that of the Suns Mav series, uh, averaged four and a half million viewers, so almost double what um, F1 did. The opening weekend of the NBA playoffs as a whole averaged like uh, four four million, so still more. And even like before the All Star break, the most watched non Christmas Day regular season game was three point six one million viewers for the NBA. So like even. If this was supposed to be like F1's like America event, it doesn't like stack up stack up to the best NBA regular season event. And and this was on broadcast television too, it was on ABC. So you didn't have to like be a subscriber to ESPN or whatever, all that stuff. And then if, if F one I doubt it has it's like diluted itself to have this ambition, but if it's trying to be the NFL, way off. Like seventeen point one million viewers for a regular season game on average last year. And hundred twelve million people watched the Super Bowl. You know what I mean? Like yeah, you're never gonna get. It's never gonna get to that level. So, yes, it has been growing, but I think this is illustrative of another point that F1, I think specifically for U.S. audiences, maybe for a lot of audiences, is like a sport to be as like an event for people to be seen at 
rather than to actually watch. Like, that's why they like all these spectacle places like Monaco is not a good race. But you want to be seen at that race because, like, exactly. you're in with the F1 stuff. Like, especially for Miami, if you're an American celebrity there, you're like, I'm, I'm like, in with, like, F1 and, like, cutting edge, all this stuff. And, like, mm-hmm. like the gridwalk was a perfect example. There were so many. It definitely did not help the perception that American fans don't actually watch F1 and don't know anything about the sport because all the celebrities <laughs> literally had probably had no idea, like, maybe the name of one driver, maybe Lewis and Max. And then oh, other than that, you know what I mean? Like, they just didn't mm-hmm. – there was a bunch of celebrities on the grid, and they didn't know anything about F1. So that doesn't really help the U.S. perception. I think the U.S. perception right now is that it's more of an event to be seen at than to actually watch right now. So that's – I want to give myself a little bit of breathing room, too, for Lucas to go in on some of that, too. But I have some more after that. No, I mean, I think I definitely agree with the fact that, like, it's more of a spectacle to be seen at rather than to, like, experience and be fans of. But I do think that, like – to some extent, like, that is true of, like, the Super Bowl and, like, other things in this. Like, I don't know how okay. many Super Bowls are necessarily going, or how many celebrities are necessarily going to the Super Bowl to, like, watch the game. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's also something that's, like, oh, when they, like, when CBS or whoever, like, pants through the crowd, they're like, oh, there's LeBron and there's J-Lo and there's, like, you know, another list of celebs. And, like, the same thing with, like, um, with the Miami Grand Prix where you saw... Michelle Obama and Bad Bunny and, like, every other celebrity from, like, every possible walk of life showing up there. Mm -hmm. So I think, yes, that's absolutely true. But I think even something like that, like, does lend itself to, like, what the popularity of F1 in the U.S. has done over the past 10 years. Like, can you imagine 10 years ago if, like, like all those celebrities showing up to the U.S. Grand Prix? Like, I just don't think that would happen. Like, it's become at least something that is on the cutting edge um, and something that is growing. And, well, I think, I agree. I think that the growth is overstated to some extent. Um, I do think that the potential is super high. Because, you know, somebody is on David Beckham's Instagram and they see that he's at the yeah. Miami Grand Prix. And then, you know, they get into it or whatever. So, yes, I think it's overstated. But I think the the growth pattern is super high at this point yeah. um, for F1 in America. But I think even even if you look... There, the growth is there, but there is, even if you look, there's still so much room that they need to make up. Like even, I was thinking of another event that's like a special event that a lot of people pay attention to, but don't watch anything else from that sport is like the Masters. Yeah, I would think it's a okay. comparison. 10 million viewers for the Masters final round. You know what I mean? So they still have a lot of, of ground to make up. If they got to that, that's like a little bit more cultural cachet, I think. And, like, maybe an occasional ESPN highlight, you know what I mean, of an F1 race gets on there on Sunday uh, afternoons. But mm-hmm. So I think that's fair, though, that the growth potential is there, like what you're saying. Um, yeah, and I think, too, that F1 sees that growth potential. That's why they're having three Grand Prix in America next that's year. That's a lot, um, though. That's a lot for one yeah, country, I, for, I for think, two I, million I viewers. <laughs> I think it's too much, too. But I think that they see that they don't see the two million. They see the 330 million. And yeah. they're like, even if we, like, can capture, like, a, like 5% of that, like, those incredible numbers, that would just, like, super help grow the sport. Yeah. Well, then why don't we have three races in China? You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. No, that, I, that's what you yes, could say. Like, all right, well, let's, uh-huh. let's do six races in China, then, if you want to base it on a population or whatever. Yeah. Or, and true. then well, do and we, five races in India. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But. And we have a Chinese driver. We don't have an American driver, too. So, like. Right. I would say another aspect of the Miami Grand Prix 
is another an, kind of annoying thing for me, or it is an annoying thing for me about F1, is how much they like say they care about safety when they only care about safety in respects to public opinion and how much money it's going to bring in. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, every sports league only is going to make changes in response to overwhelming like public outcry or public demand. But mm-hmm. they're screaming about safety with this like whole fireproof underwear check and like drivers can't rear piercings. But then multiple drivers this weekend complained about the safety of Miami's track because they have concrete barriers mm-hmm. in a lot of places rather than the Tech Pro ones and the tire barriers. Tire barriers and Carlos and Esteban Ocon both crashed in that same spot uh, in like the second sector, um, and that's a straight concrete barrier. And they're like, it was pretty painful. Actually, there's a lot of blind corners as well. Then of course we have Saudi Arabia, another dangerous street track. Like we've seen, it's it's a dangerous track. Blind corners, concrete barriers. There's literally a drone strike miles away from the track, and that and that's safe yeah. apparently. You know what I mean? It's like that's the di- direction that F1 wants to go though, and. Like you said, if it goes too far, it'll lose fans, and that'll be the only way that they course correct. You know what I mean? It's it's yeah. always been like that, where they like they'd finish a race where a driver like passed away during the race. They would finish that race. It's pretty yeah. crazy. Like F one's always yeah. done that, but at some point, you you don't you, the racing needs to be good too. Like street tracks generally seem to be more about spectacle than actually producing good racing. And I know Miami was kind of like a purpose built track in a way. Um. But yeah, that's my other like worry about their trend towards street tracks and like spectacles. Yeah, no, because I, I think too is like you do lose like a lot of what makes the sport enjoyable. And while like we've mentioned this before, like so much of the competition of F one is like behind the scenes. Like there are so many races that are competitive and enjoyable to watch. And like Miami this weekend was just like it was fine, not really was, that. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was like it wasn't bad, but it wasn't like great either and so like yeah i do worry that you lose that and you mentioned too that like the only way they'll like course correct is if they end up losing fans um but i think what's gonna happen or like i think what is likely to happen is that if they do push really far in the street track direction and in the miami direction the saudi arabia direction that they're just gonna capture new fans but they're gonna lose this sort of old core fan base like Mm -hmm. you'll get more people in those countries like because at this point like in europe um, you probably have the fans you're going to have at this point. Like, it's been such an established spectacle there. Or, spectacle, I'm using that word. It's been such an established sport there for so long that, like, you're probably not going to increase your market share there. And even if, like, it, that drops off by, like, 10 or 20% because you lose a lot of, like, hardcore fans who sort of miss what it might have used to have been, um, you gain immensely more fans all throughout the middle east and the united states and all that if you have those tracks so like it's a good point i don't know i think i think it, a lot of it's probably just like a business decision you mentioned too like zach brown seems to see it as a businessman and just making like business decisions and like i think you can attribute some of that to like the american ownership again and sort of like tying back to what i said at the beginning is like they're saying this is like a business decision and like how can they make the most money and i think the because of the potential growth in the u.s in the middle east that's why they're pushing for this. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, follow-up question, though. They're obviously doing a lot of new tracks now, Vegas being the, the most high-profile pro, high new one. Lucas, I'll ask you, where, where do you think would be a few like dream destinations for F1 to have a race in your mind? Okay. I have three. I know we just, <laughs> or I and 
we just like knock down street races um in glamorous I, I locations have street races too, though, but. <laughs> but i think one in new york city would be so much fun like i don't know about highway that. or something i don't know go ahead you cool. go though. yeah I, I just like i don't know i think new york is such like, a glamorous like location and like having it go down like the tip of manhattan on the west side highway and like all that would be super cool the streets are so narrow which would probably make it like awful racing i was about but, to like, say like <laughs> i feel like cities with high traffic i can't imagine an f1 race there yeah but no i think like the spectacle of it would be cool even yeah. if the race itself might not be the most exciting and then two others i think i'd really like to see them expand to africa the african continent as well because i feel like that's a pretty untapped market i looked they had a few south african grand prix um the last one being in 93 i think it was but they haven't had one since apartheid ended in south africa so i'd love to see one go back to south africa um, and another one um, I'd like to see if they're expanding into Africa um, would be one in Egypt. Um, I think mm. one in like the shadow of the pyramids would be pretty cool. That would be cool. From like an aesthetic perspective too. Um, and it sort of ties together them wanting to expand into Africa with like them expanding into the Middle East already. So those are the three I had down. One in South Africa, one in New York, one in Egypt. What about you? Okay. So I, yeah, I had a couple. Of, I had uh, two in Africa as well, actually. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of similar to yours. Uh, first though, I would replace Miami with Laguna Seca, which is down in California. And, Mm -hmm. um, it's like a purpose-built track and that will like alleviate, like we said that, like, we don't need more street tracks necessarily. And, Mm -hmm. um, it's a little safer as well. And it's got, I'd like tracks as well though, that, um, it is safer, but there's a lot of gravel or dirt and stuff. So that like drivers have to be very calculated about their moves rather than, Mm-hmm. like brazil for example last year you can run lewis uh, like max could l- run lewis off the road and go off the road himself because there's a bunch of tarmac out there you know what i mean yeah mm-hmm. and laguna seca is not like that it's pretty interesting like indycar races there um i believe i, I actually mm-hmm. didn't confirm that i think they do though and i've seen it in just in like video games and stuff it looks like a cool track um endorse that for sure definitely keep austin i really like the venue i think it's a cool track and it's produced some pretty good mm-hmm. racing from what we've uh, i've seen um i like vegas i think it, it is going to be the u.s monaco in like the most f1 destination i can think of besides mm-hmm. monaco to be honest i i put that new york at la like just want to work i don't think it would work there's too much traffic there and i don't know where you put it but Maybe Dubai potentially if they want to like see that. get yeah. rid of Qatar for example I think Qatar should go mm-hmm. that's that's a boring track maybe Dubai that'd be a street circuit <laughs> but mm-hmm. I think Dubai yeah. would be interesting uh, I also had a North Africa one but I said Casablanca I feel like that's oh. a that's a type of location that has old world prestige and yeah. would be really cool I agree South Africa as well um, mm-hmm. like like you said they're in talks to actually return there to I might butcher this pronunciation Kailami which is close to Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. They should go to Cape Town, though. Cape Town looks sick. I, uh, anytime I was looking so up cool. like most glamorous mm-hmm. destinations, Cape Town was on there all the time. It's a 17-hour drive from Johannesburg, though, so it's pretty, pretty far. far. Yeah. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure they have a major airport there. Um, how about this one? This, <laughs> this is a joke, actually. <laughs> this is my most impractical venue I could think of, the Grand Prix Let's of Venice. It. That would be so cool. <laughs> impossible to impossible. do, but Venice impossible, but I would love it. Yeah. yeah that, that'd be funny. But no, I think to, you were mentioning of Casablanca. I think that would be so cool. Yeah, I think that'd be cool. And it'd be, it's kind of close for European. Um, I mean, it's in the same time zone, mostly, as European uh, uh, viewers. And like, if you wanted to yeah. travel there, you could, too. 
So oh, it's sure. not that far. And I also put, I made a couple lists too of tracks that I think like must stay on the calendar and tracks that I'm like, they can leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll just go through really quickly. Everybody, all the fans say this, and I definitely agree. I think Spa absolutely should not be leaving the calendar. It's such a cool track. I love the the Eau Rouge, the, that first little S is really cool. Uh, Silverstone and Mon- I like Silverstone a lot. Monza, I don't really like as much, but it's kind of part of the Holy Trinity, so mm-hmm. I'm fine with that. Brazil, really great track. It's not in danger yes, or anything, absolutely. but that should it's stay. Insane. I really like Bahrain. I think it's produced really good races since I've been watching. Mm-hmm. Um I'm not sure what the F1 fans fan base generally thinks about that, but I like Bahrain. Saudi Arabia is dangerous, but to be fair, has produced two good races in my opinion. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm kind of mixed on that. And then Baku, Azerbaijan, I think is an awesome track. It's really fun yes, in the F1 great. game too. Mm-hmm. And then Singapore, which is another street track, but I think it looks really fun. I'm not sure what the overtaking is like there, but I've also played that one in the F1 game, and it's a cool track. No, and Singapore too. I feel like sort of like gets into like the glamour as well as yeah, a glamour location does. street race as well, which I think is always kind of cool to watch as well. Yeah. In terms of tracks that could leave, they they could get rid of France, and I wouldn't I wouldn't even notice Spain. No, Spain for me. I am excited for the race, but they could also get rid of that one as well. Uh, Qatar, also, they just signed, so they're not going to get rid of them, but that one wouldn't be, I wouldn't be sad about that. And then Turkey hasn't been my favorite so far. It's rained both times that we've been there since I've been a fan, I believe. Uh So those are kind of my top, like, eh, they can get rid of those, and I wouldn't bat an eye. Yeah, no, I'm totally okay with that. I think Spain year in, year out has consistently produced, like, the least exciting races. And, like, I, don't know, I saw, I think it was Will Buxton tweet the other day that was like the biggest test for like the new cars is going to be whether they can make the Spanish Grand Prix actually exciting for yeah. us. So like if we like, I don't know, if we lose that, I don't think I'm, I would be terribly upset either. Yeah. I'll get, I'll get into Spain a little bit too at the end with the flying lap, but cause I, okay. I do, even though I was saying it should go, I still have some, some thoughts on it too. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, we're going to move from Spain to talking a little bit about a Spanish driver and one of his biggest rivals. So we're five races into the season, and Carlos Sainz and Sergio Perez have solidly settled into their number two roles on their team. So Jared, what have you made of how each driver has performed in this number two role this season, and who do you think is doing a better job? I'm mostly just going to go off gut on this one, but I think Carlos has proved he's been, he is going to be the better number two this year. And for me, it's just the... Yes, he's ha- he's made his mistakes, so that's why he's behind Sergio in the driver's standings right now. Mm-hmm. But the Red Bull was the faster car this weekend in Miami on race pace. And uh, as we saw, like, with Max beating the Claire, obviously. And then after the safety car-, car restart, I was super impressed with Carlos. Checo was on fresh mediums. Carlos was mm-hmm. still on his hard-, hard tires. Safety car got the tires warmed up and showed great race craft. He let Sergio pass him on turn one and then mm-hmm. kind of did a little switcheroo on him. And... And I was just really impressed by that. And because Checo is another driver that has really good racecraft too. But Carlos kind of outdueled him there. I was really impressed with that. And I can confidently say, I think, he's not on Leclerc or Max's level. And normally not on Lewis's level, even though he's kind of struggling this year. I don't think he's on that top three level. But I think he's definitely, he's better than Lando. Like he's beat Lando both season at McLaren. He beat him last year, mm-hmm. like Ferrari, not the same car, obviously, but Ferrari to McLaren, he beat him. I think he's better than Checo, as I said. He's definitely better than Daniel, Alonso, Gasly, all those other guys that might kind of be in that echelon. I'm not sure where I'd rank him against George Russell, to be honest, because I think George Russell's really good, or even Bottas, because he's mm-hmm. also really good. And and 
Carlos is kind of serving like the Bottas role right now, you know, like yes. just being like a really solid number two, but he's not, I don't know if he's going to challenge Leclerc that much this year. So that, but that means at worst, he's a top six driver on the grid, probably a top five driver right now. And like definitely in the mix of best of the rest that aren't like legit title contenders right now. Um, yeah. For Carlos, like that being said, he needs to do a better job in order to be like a better number two, if that's what he is, mm-hmm. of fending off Max in wheel-to-wheel battles. Like, there wasn't much he could do in this situation, but you're not doing much to help Leclerc by letting Max pass you on the first turn. Like in this in this instance, he didn't really have anywhere to go, but he could do better at that. And then for Checo, he's already done this, but he needs to he would need to improve his quality just a bit more to split the Ferraris more often. And he definitely has improved his qualifying this year. Like, he had a pole, um, obviously, in Saudi Arabia. Um, that's what I see from those two drivers, though. And um, I'm excited for Carlos. I hope his ceiling might be something like um, Nico Rosberg or something like that, which I've heard been mm-hmm. thrown around where he can get a title out of it, but maybe not as good as Leclerc. I mean, I hope his ceiling is is higher than that, but a multiple-time champion. But he still needs to win a race first, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I'm gonna be honest. I think your your fandom of science is getting in the way Mm-mm. a little bit here in terms of rating him against Checo. And I think you alluded to it at the end of your answer. It, the reason why I think Checo has been, you know, comfortably more than number two, um, the better number two is that science has just put up no fight against Max all year, like consistently year in and year out. You mentioned it. He let him get past in turn one um, this past weekend, and that eventually just sort of. I don't know, led to Max climbing up and eventually passing Charles and winning the race. And, like, if you're going to sort of fulfill the role in number two, and I think that's what he just has to accept his role is this year. Like mm-hmm. like you said, his ceiling might project out further, um, that he's better in the end. Um, but he's got to stop Max, and he just has not put up a fight against him all year. And to Checo's credit, I think he's done a better job of it, and has shown in the past that he's done a better job of protecting Max when it needs to be done, um, even if it didn't happen uh, this past weekend. And Sainz just has put so much pressure on himself with all the crashes. And we've talked about this before on the podcast, and you've talked about it before, so I'm not going to belabor the point too much. But I think that's he's driving with a pressure that Checo isn't at this point, mm. and that has hurt his performance. And, you know... He's 13 points behind him in the driver's standing. Or Checo's 13 points ahead of Sainz in the driver's standing at this point. And I think that is at, somewhat ref- at some point reflective of the consistency that Checo has had versus Sainz. Yeah, but then the consistency over 22 races, though, Sainz has proven that he's good at that. So that's sure, where I would push I mean, back. I agree, but I feel like even just based on this season alone, like I, I, nothing to me suggests that Sainz is going to necessarily have a more consistent season than Jacko at this point. Mm. I think I think his history just speaks for itself and that he's he's had races where he's had two crashes in a row last year as well. Mm-hmm. Wait, but wait, so know, my think... question is what what other times had did Carlos not hold up did not, did a bad job of holding up Max? What what was the other time? I actually cannot think of it off the top of my head. It might be me, but I just think like he always like sort of like capitulates when like like there's a faster car behind him. Like I, there's been no point yeah. in which he has sort of led the field and um, I think for that reason alone, like, I think that, I don't know, he's not, he's just, like, the inferior number two driver. And I know you, like, suggested his history in the past, but 
he's never been in this exact situation before. He's never had the fastest car on the grid, and I think it's easier to be consistent when there's less pressure when you're in a McLaren than there is necessarily when you're on a Ferrari. And I think the pressure has shown itself this year that it's gotten to him, and he slipped up a number of times. Okay, maybe, maybe. Well, well, I mean, we'll we'll keep revisiting it. I want to talk about. I've said I want to talk about Carlos pretty much every time we do an F one race and kind of be a, a good community for for Carlos stands. But mm-hmm. um, we'll see. We'll see throughout the year. I think his consistency is gonna that he is gonna prove it out. We've said before on the podcast he usually does not start seasons that strong. Like both seasons at McLaren, for example, uh, Lando had outscored him through the first four races, first five races, I think. Yeah. So. Yeah, let's give it time. We'll give it time. I still believe in Carlos. I think I also respect Checo a lot, but I believe in Carlos. Fair enough. Yeah. So let's do. We're gonna do a segment here in in honor of our name and the, our tradition of honoring blue, blue collar uh, sports teams <laughs> and icons. We're gonna do our lunch pail driver of the week. Starting something new across our podcast shows. Um, and it's time we award that to a driver based on their Miami performance from this last week. So, Lucas, who, <laughs> I love this question. Who is the lunch pail driver of the week, and why is it Alex Albon? This was not I'm me glad- that wrote that. This was Lucas. <laughs> I'm glad you teed that up for me, Jared, because the lunch pail driver of the week is absolutely Alex Albon, who finished P9 at Miami. The fact that he has dragged the Williams points finishes in two races this year, not just one, but two races this year, is incredible given the fact that it seemingly has no pace whatsoever. I've heard it be described to a minivan um, and how it drives by some people. And yeah, he's dragged it to two points finishes with good strategy and hard driving, while his teammate, Nicholas Latifi, has just crumbled this year and has done pretty much nothing. Um, Alvin has shown he can be a great, gritty driver who can get the most out of the car. And um, he doesn't really get into any sort of issues, uh, even though he drives hard, or at least he hasn't as much in Miami. Um, he was quoted after the Miami Grand Prix as saying he couldn't move his arms. That's, I don't know, that's commitment, that's being <laughs> intense while you drive, that's blue collar, and it's lunch pail it guy is. energy for me. Um, so overall, I think Albon's put in some really gritty performances this year, encapsulated again by that P9 finish at Miami this past weekend. Um, he's getting the most out of his car, even though he doesn't have a great one, working hard, and for all that, he's the lunch pail driver of the week. I think that's a very fair um, pick. I think there is one driver and like kind of team that is a little bit more deserving though. I'm going to go with Esteban Ocon actually. I think yeah, it was a very blue collar effort from him and the entire team. He crashed in uh, free practice, the third free practice, so they couldn't make it to qualifying. But the guys in the garage got to work, got the car ready for the race, started last on the grid, and then of course basically got two free spots because the Aston Martin started from the pit lane. But 18th, he finished right in front of Albon. Eighth, which is great. A really long stint on hard tires. I feel like a long stint on tires, like tire management, is a very like blue-collar mm-hmm. F1 attribute. For sure. And use a virtual safety car to pit. It, it was just a great race overall from him and the team. The Alpine has a lot of pace, too. More than like their points would suggest, because I think Alonso's kind of gotten a lot of like crashes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um so I'm interested to see how that team does throughout the year. But, yeah, I'm going to go with um, Esteban Alcon here. I think that's fair. I'll also give an honorable mention to somebody driving for maybe the least blue-collar team, um, and that is George Russell. Yes. I think George Russell has absolutely just been a – he's the only driver to finish P5 or above in every single race so far this year. He only has the one podium, um, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but 
he just puts in really good, consistent races. Doesn't cloak, doesn't brag, but just does his job every single week. And that's lunch fail guy energy, too. So I'll yeah. shout out George Russell as well. Yeah, I, I actually had him as an honorable mention as well. I feel like, like like I said, a long, set, a long stint on a set of tires is very blue-collar. But yeah, Mercedes is the least blue... Like you said, the least blue-collar <laughs> brand probably on the... I mean, Ferrari and Aston Martin also are not very... Eh, maybe. Aston Martin's definitely not blue-collar, though. I wouldn't say. Ferrari, no, I, I could so. kind of see a case, but not really. It's, They're like the team of the people, you know. Yeah, they, they, yeah, they kind of are. Um, I liked Bottas as well. He's a work hard kind of yeah. guy. But mm-hmm. Alcon had a, a bigger charge through the field, so I gave it to him. Lance Stroll, too, like, also did the same thing. He made a charge through the back, but mm-hmm. the team had to refuel his car. They had to take the gas back out and put it back in because of some yeah. issue. That's not very blue-collar for me. That's not no. lunch pill like no, messing <laughs> up like that. Maybe even it's even like you're cheating. Not blue collar. No. Yeah. yeah, everybody we pick plays by the rules. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fine. But yeah, okay. So those are all of our uh, our lunch pill drivers of the week, um, and we're gonna finish off uh, with the flying lap. Jared introduced this in his last pit stop episode. So Jared, take us through some stories you briefly want to shout out from Miami this past week. Is it possible that George Russell is just better than Lewis? It's crazy. It sounds crazy, but is he just better? Mm-hmm. Potentially. I don't know. I, I was talking to somebody about this um, this past weekend, and I think part of the reason why Lewis is struggling so much is because he's so much older than George, and with the porpoising, it's so much more physically taxing on your body. Mm. Um, if you're, what, Lewis is 36? Yeah, he's some, yeah I think so. And, and George Russell is 23, I think. 24. He just turned 24, but yeah. Um yeah, I mean, I think the fact that Lewis has 12 years on him, like, having to, like, deal with a more physically demanding car is probably impacting Lewis more than it is George, I would say. But I point. still think that, yeah, I mean, maybe George just is better than Lewis at this point in their careers. Yeah, true. Yeah, you, have, you do have to consider the point of the career, for sure. Um, again, Mick, I think, is feeling some pressure right now. Mick Schumacher, like, he hasn't scored yet. Yeah. He's in a car that definitely can score points. The crash with Vettel, I thought was his fault. Like, it looked kind of silly to me. I don't know yeah. if you have thoughts on that. No, I mean, and he was running a pretty good race. Up he was running a good race. Up to that point. Um, and, yeah, I don't know. He just, I don't know. I worry a little bit about him. Like, because it's very clear that he's in, like you said, a car that can score points. And yet he just keeps coming up short. And we've alluded to this before, but some of his deficiencies as a driver might have been papered over a little bit last yeah. year because his teammate was just awful and like i saw some talk <laughs> on awful. yeah um on reddit formula one about this they're like maybe the haas wasn't as bad as we all thought it was last year like maybe it was just two really bad drivers in it because it could be because, like it still I wasn't like a this... good car by any stretch <laughs> yeah but like it might not have been as dramatically bad as it seemed last year just because both drivers yeah two rookies highest caliber yeah yeah um, last thought on Barcelona, like we said, it's typically produces boring races because they test there. So they have a lot of data on like what strategies to use, like long, long run paces, short run paces, mm-hmm. but I'm ex- I am excited for it. I'm hopeful for it. I should say I've been racing it this week a bit in the F1 2021 game, which of course doesn't nice. give me any cre- credibility, but it's a nice like start finish straight. It's pretty long and it's followed by like a really a sharp turn in a turn one. Mm-hmm. And that usually produces like a good opportunity for an overtake with a DRS zone and then a sharp turn. Mm-hmm. And then they do it again later in the race too with like a decently long straight and then like a hundred meter 
braking zone that's like a almost a 90 degree turn i want to say mm-hmm. um and there's like a hairpin as well on like turn three or four or something like that it's it's a cool track or i mean the, it has it has potential i think we'll see like like i said if the new cars are gonna do anything if they don't do anything then all right maybe it's time to get rid of barcelona for vegas <laughs> or whatever it is but <laughs> um i'm interested i'm interested in this track though to see what it yeah, looks like as well like I'm excited. I think every track is exciting this year, with the new cars and just seeing how they perform in each. So, gotcha. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. You have any flying lap remarks? No, I was gonna leave it to you. It is All your, right. uh, it is your segment. So I was gonna let you take the reins on that one. Sweet. I had three sectors for that flying lap. I like it. See, it's all theme. It's all good. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, thank you for tuning in to this latest episode of Pit Stop. Best way you can help us out is by listening and by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify, wherever you listen to our podcasts, and rating us five stars over there. You can check out our other shows, our main show, which comes out twice a week, um, and No Days Off, which is why it's uh, NFL off-season show. Um, so stay tuned for all the good content we have, and thanks for listening.